Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. Season 4 of Discography was completed in 2019, but due to circumstances beyond our control, as well as many, many, shall we say, life roadblocks for the host, that's me, Mark with a C, it was not feasible to release the initial edit at the time. As Discography is now a self-contained, fair-use production, a completely re-edited version of this season was finally completed in 2020, so please don't be thrown off by the various dates of recording that'll be thrown about in the episodes. This season was a long game, and it's a bit of a miracle that it was resuscitated at all. We intend to try to keep Discography going, and felt that the wait for this season was so excruciatingly long with moved and missed release dates, we wanted to give you what exists as soon as possible so we can move on to the next phase for Discography. And we thank you for your support, patience, and your understanding. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this show, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective, right? Discography can also be a really personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front. And this season, we are jumping into the catalog of one of the most mysterious yet malleable and powerful bands of all time, Black Sabbath. so much for joining us again this week. I'm so happy you're here, but hey, if this happens to be your very first time joining us on Discography, this is Act 3 of the Black Sabbath Saga, as I see it at least. And I'd like to ask that you go back, just in case this is the first time you joined us, please go back to the very first episode, follow us straight down this path, because we end up in a lot of rabbit holes, and there's... Frankly, there's a lot of moving parts. They all refuse to stand still. We've had some guests along the way to try to help us separate the stuff from the stuff, as William H. Macy once said in the all-too-underrated show, Sports Night. But just in case you're wondering, why does this, say, around 1986, why does this mark Act 3 for Black Sabbath? I mean, in general, if you hack Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3, right, like... If you start right in 1986, and I'm recording this in 2019, and that might be around when you're hearing it, you go, geez, what a long third act. Not quite. Actually, it's my belief that to hit Act 3 of Black Sabbath, we gotta talk about the way that they would eventually bottom out during the fallout of Seventh Star. As you can imagine, the way that the band, and specifically Tony Iommi, bottomed out in this period can be pretty astonishing, and the reason I'm doing this, even though you can't really hear this stuff on the ensuing records, which is what we try to focus on on discography, is because... Okay, listen, if you're 19, and you're seeing Black Sabbath shirts being sold on the cheapo rack at every Walmart and Target, you may have no concept of how bad things actually became for them in this period. There's a lot of information, misinformation, and disinformation, but I'm going to try to hit on some bullet points to ease us into the next record and the next act. 
Here we go. Number one, Glenn Hughes, the vocalist for Seventh Star. He got punched in the face reportedly due to begging for cocaine on the first night of the Seventh Star tour, and the blow was so bad that it pretty much broke his face, coating his throat in blood, and as a result, he was hardly able to speak, let alone sing, and was fired after less than six shows. Number two, a new vocalist was brought in named Ray Gillen, no relation to Ian, to finish the remaining dates that hadn't been canceled for one reason or another, and to fill in for Glenn Hughes. He's young, he loved the ladies, and the ladies loved him. Good singer to boot, and legally, I am afraid to say much more than that. Number three, manager Don Arden. Well, he was sued by ELO over a royalty dispute, so he allegedly decided to kidnap and torture his accountant. And according to Mick Wall's Symptom of the Universe book, he wanted to, quote, make sure he never had a child. As you can imagine, he wouldn't be Black Sabbath's manager for much longer. So number four, in a fit of desperation, Tony hired a new manager by the name of Patrick Meehan, who was... Hold, hold on. What? Check my notes. Really? The original Sabbath manager, the one that screwed and exploited the man so mightily. Okay, fine. Patrick Meehan's the manager again now. Number five, undeterred, Tony and Jeff Nichols set a course for some new music, pretty much finishing an album with Ray Gillen on vocals, but then Ray quit in a rather opportunistic way, though he might have done so at just the right time because number six, one of the very first acts that Patrick Meehan did as the new management was to book the band in Sun City, playing roughly six dates at what some claim was a whites-only venue. While Tony Iommi disputes the racial aspect in his book, it's also refuted by many accounts in the book Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, The Battle for Black Sabbath. But the jury's still out on if they were crossing apartheid lines, and Geezer Butler had just, I mean just considered rejoining the group, but reportedly walked due to this very action. But number seven, where Sun City performances had been a complete disgrace for acts like Queen, in case you're wondering, you know, why Live Aid was so important to them. Black Sabbath, I mean, some people raised some eyebrows, but ultimately they were at such a low ebb that hardly anyone outside of hard rock circles noticed that they'd even done it. Number eight, Tony was not about to release an album wherein the vocalist had already quit before the album came out. I mean, come on. So this time, fate arrived via the former Sabbath business associate, Anthony Chapman, who plopped a massively talented singer onto Tony Iommi's doorstep. A man who was pretty much the epitome of unknown, but might be the biggest salvation that the band would ever receive, one man named Tony Martin. Number nine. Tony Martin was brought in to redo the vocals on that album that was sitting in the can, the album that I believe kicks off Act 3 for Black Sabbath, The Eternal Idol. took around three producers, eight musicians, some of whom are credited on the sleeve but don't actually appear on the record, and a whole bunch of drama, but eventually Black Sabbath released their first album with Tony Martin in November of 1987 on Warner Brothers in the US and Vertigo in the UK. 
The credits claim that Tony Iommi wrote the whole shebang, but anyone lucky enough to hear what remains of the initial sessions contained on a bonus disc on the 2010 reissue of the album in question, The Eternal Idol, knows that Ray Gillen likely tried to write to some extent, and Sir Iommi rarely, if ever, was known to be much of a lyricist. And hey, while we're on the subject of album credits, let's just specify that, though I do quite like Dave Spitz, the bass work here is actually handled by, get this, Bob Daisley of Ozzy's early solo band, right? And Bob wrote quite a bit of those first few Ozzy solo records, so it's not hard for me to imagine that he might have had his fingers in the lyrical pie here. Bev Bevan even reemerges for a bit of percussion work, but that's reportedly just a few cymbal overdubs. Jeff Glixman was the initial producer, a holdover from the Seventh Star era, but even he eventually walked away from the project. They didn't know it yet, but the new core of Black Sabbath was rooted in that of Tony Iommi, Jeff Nichols, and the newly appointed lead singer, Tony Martin. I'm not going to pretend that this isn't a confusing period, so you'll just have to forgive me if I don't mention something that maybe you know about this era. And that's to be expected when you start an album with one lineup and finish with a completely different one and have all those changeovers along the way. Let's address Mr. Gillen first. Ray Gillen. Alright, uh, Ray passed away from a disease related to the AIDS virus in 1993. Even if he had stuck around before jumping ship to try out for Blue Murder and eventually join Badlands, it would have only been for just so long, and as he reportedly knowingly infected an almost countless number of women, it's highly probable that far more damage would have been done to the Black Sabbath name if he'd stayed for the band for even one album cycle. And boy, oh boy, it is really tempting to just try to sort the drama from truth that's really not what we do here on Discography, even though that seems to be what we're turning into, especially this season. We try our best to focus on what made it to the grooves on the record, but in some cases, and especially with Sabbath, it's not always as simple as, say, you know, popularity ebbing and flowing. If the general public either didn't know of a Black Sabbath record, or maybe just thought it was a less beloved era, there's often a pretty good reason for this, and it rarely, if ever has anything to do with the actual music they were making at the time. I mean, I would have loved to just do this season only talking about these magical grooves, but if I'd done that, I guarantee that you'd have felt really cheated by all the surrounding drama just being glossed over, and I hate the gossip stuff as much as the next guy that claims to hate the gossipy stuff. But in the case of Black Sabbath, that gossip and drama is absolutely paramount to understanding what the hell's going on with people coming and going around this time. I'd have done you a great disservice by glossing over the info, and I'd have frankly wasted your time. So with all that out of the way, and knowing that there is a lot more drama coming down the pike, I figured this was as good a time as any to state that to you. And just in case you're curious as to why I consider the release of The Eternal Idol to be the beginning of the third act, well, because at this point, let's be real, ask any band member. Black Sabbath's revolving door was just becoming a joke in the music industry. Hell, Warner Brothers completely dropped him at this point, but the appearance of Tony Martin and the symbiotic creative relationship that would bloom, that's the beginning of Black Sabbath crawling out of the muck. It's the beginning of rebuilding the backbone of a mighty, mighty band, but now they just have to get that across to the folks that needed to know. So how's the first album in this new act, you ask? Solid. Now, I have a lot more to say about it, but let's just let that be known right up front. I got no issue with this record. It does get a little samey in places, and there are tracks where I, I kind of feel as if 
They're almost playing it safe and just going for the hard rock that they could write in their sleep, but overall, it's a tight and unified album when it easily has every excuse to be another fiasco, like Born Again, or worse. When it's good, it's absolutely outstanding, and when it's a bit more samey, it could literally be any number of struggling hard rock bands in 1987 that just happened to include Tony Iommi to less attuned ears. But there is definitely a newfound energy, and it should be obvious to anyone with a set of ears that this was a new beginning, right from the deceptive, first, relatively laid-back notes of the classic opener, The Shining. nice and pillowy pad of guitars, and then Tony Iommi slides in with a razor-sharp riff, drops it down to the rhythm section, the keyboards, and the first chance to hear the pipes of Tony Martin. He's a bit reminiscent of one Ronnie James Dio, but with a bit less snarl right now, smoother edges, and I got a hunch that this voice can go a lot more places than anyone suspects. And it all comes together in their most fist-pumping chorus since the days of Mob Rules, too. Rise Please tell me you caught that little bass run from Bob Daisley there. And some have offered interpretations that this song might have been lyrically referring to the Stephen King book of the same name, maybe the movie, while Tony Martin's reading of the line, Don't be blinded by fools again, seems to bring forth a little bit more weight, especially since he's no doubt overwhelmed by the inner workings of this very strange organization, and could probably clearly see the damage left in the wake of a few particular fools. The Shining spends a good portion of its second half at half speed, allowing Tony Iommi room for an almost confessional solo before returning with... Well, can you call this anything besides a classic Tony Iommi riff? kickoff, right? So you might be wondering why I seem a bit reserved about heaping praise onto this sucker, and, well, that's not the worst read for you to get on my opinion on the record. I know that this new core of Black Sabbath is going to come into their own a bit more, hell, a lot more, and when you've got so many producers coming and going, there's no way you don't end up with some fairly generic production decisions, like the way that Eric Singer's snare is still coded in that gated reverb. A hallmark of the time, but a tone that dates the music immediately. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you use a bunch of digital effects, you're basically carbon dating your record. And as this was the very first Black Sabbath record to be completely recorded digitally, to my knowledge, there are some growing pains in the Sonics department, especially in the lack of low frequencies. I want a bit more kick with my Sabbath, personally, and can you imagine how much heavier the song Ancient Warrior could have been with just a little bit of a goose on the low end?
course, this was the era when those Steinberger basses with the super slinky tones were all the rage, you know, the headless ones, like the, the one that Getty was playing in Rush's show of hands home video. So it's something that likely was intentional or would have happened anyways if this had been an all analog affair, really. I mean, it was just kind of what was going on at the time. But anyways, back to Ancient Warrior with a refrain of, uh, he is the king of all kings. Some have decided that the song is clearly about Jesus, and others have decided that this is clearly about Lucifer. My first impression was that it was just sort of a celebration of the lifestyle of the warrior, like, think uh, Sun and Steel from Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind album, but Bob Daisley says that we're all wrong on this one, and that it's probably just a work of fiction altogether. But before we go much further, I do want to get the rest of that sort of samey hodgepodge aspect of the album out of the way. For example, the second that Hard Life to Love kicks in, I'm ready, I'm in for the groove, but then Tony Martin starts singing, like, coded in this slick digital reverb, which doesn't really help or hinder the song, it's just kind of there. these effects, you can hear that this has a groove to die for. But hey, let me tell you up front, Tony Martin, let me focus on him for a second. This cat is pretty brilliant on a technical level, so unless Tony Martin, the new kid in town, somehow convinced one of the multitudes of producers and engineers to give him a bunch of effects that traditionally aren't used for Sabbath vocalists, I mean, most times. I have to assume that this was just a decision made by someone collecting a paycheck, not all that invested in the artistic aspects. And who that would be, I can't hazard a guess, but when I say the word generic, which I don't really want to say, that's kind of what I mean. When people come and go from an album like this, you get something kind of faceless, but faceless does not mean bad. Especially in the back half of Eternal Idol, when each track starts to get better and cooler than the last. Actually, one of my very favorite things about Eternal Idol is that when I really need a break from the super high-frequency pummeling, Hiding on Side 2 is another quieter acoustic passage, just like in the days of old in a track called Scarlet Pimpernel. See, those types of respites, they just help me tune into all the cool stuff going on in the middle of, say, Glory Ride, where the light and shade after the guitar solo comes so rapid-fire that it's almost tough to keep up with, which probably wasn't what anyone was expecting from the band at this point, which is a good, good thing, because, like I said last episode, I want to be surprised again. just kind of like the perfect metaphor for Black Sabbath, you just don't know what's going to come next, and the more you think you have it figured out, the less you actually know. Wonderful, isn't it? Now remember, this came out in 1987. Like, Miami Vice is still on the air. Guns N' Roses is quickly becoming the toast of the town. Metallica is basically redefining heavy music for the suburbs, and did you know that Tony Iommi was tapped on to provide some music for the movie Nightmare on Elm Street? It's true, and now that you're thinking about it, you're mad that it didn't end up happening too, right? 
While you can thank Patrick Meehan for pricing Iomi's contributions well outside of New Line's budget, but if you're curious what it could have sounded like, look no further than the aptly titled track from that initial idea, Nightmare. you hear there is actually a remnant of Ray Gillen left behind on the session tapes. And if I'm being totally upfront here, probably my biggest hang up with Eternal Idol is the lyrics. Now I'm not expecting literary brilliance here, but to my ears, a lot of the lyrics in general seem like what someone wrote thinking of what Black Sabbath is supposed to sing about, rather than anyone genuinely meaning any of it. And that's where I feel the disconnect, and I think that's a trend that might continue for a bit, but basically, Eternal Idol plays through to me like the debut record of a really good rock band that still hasn't completely found their feet yet, which is kind of exactly what they were at this point, and I can forgive it for tracks that just rock my socks off regardless, like Lost Forever. biggest bit of promise here is yet again delivered in the title track, a slow-building, lurching creeper with some gently plucked guitar notes that will still send shivers up your spine the way that only a Tony Iommi riff can. Child of tomorrow will die Not In fact, the closest cousin in the band's catalog so far that comes to mind is the titular song from their first album. Well, until Tony Martin starts to unleash what he's actually all about. Can you see what I see? In some people's eyes, Born Again was an unmitigated disaster. In some people's eyes, same goes for Seventh Star. If you merely laid the situation bare in front of me without letting me hear any of the music, between the three, this is the one that I'd have put my money on, the one where it was all going to fall apart. But instead, yes, I do hear some growing pains, but it's a small miracle that this album exists at all, period, let alone how good and relatively unified it comes across, all things considered especially with the revolving door and that cover art. If you haven't seen it, I guess someone thought that simply having a picture of Tony on the cover like they did for Seventh Star wouldn't really fly this time around, so Patrick Meehan wanted to use Rodin's famous sculpture, but they couldn't get the rights, so they painted up some models from head to toe in bronze paint, leaving no room for their skin to breathe, and Tony Iommi states in his autobiography that he's pretty sure they had to be rushed off to the hospital. By the time Eternal Idol hit shelves, Terry Chimes from The Clash had been brought in on drums, and the bass player's slot was so fluid that they literally pulled in a random person off the street that they never even asked the name of just to appear to be a full-on bass player in the video for The Shining. But regardless, now there's at least a trio of a team. Tony Iommi, Tony Martin, 
and Jeff Nichols. Now it was time to come into their own. But now they'd be doing it as an independent band. What you going to In the endless pursuit of trying to get Black Sabbath back onto its feet and stable, Tony Iommi finds new management in the form of Ralph Baker and Ernest Chapman, and this was in his best interest as Tony had found himself deeply in debt to the taxman after years of atrocious management. He was losing his possessions to make ends meet as recounted in his autobiography, and at this point, hell, it's easy to see that Black Sabbath is pretty much all that Tony Iommi had left. Understandably, the thought was that if they could get an older member of the group back into the fray, the resulting music might be taken a little bit more seriously and maybe even heard by a wider audience. And somewhere around this time, Geezer Butler reportedly wanted back in, but as fate would have it, you guessed right, he somehow ended up touring with Ozzy Osbourne instead, so the next thought was to get someone with an amazing resume to lend a bit of credibility to whatever came next, you know, just some name value. And that credibility arrived in the form of an amazing drummer named Cozy Powell, who had worked with the likes of Michael Schenker, Rainbow. He filled in for Carl Palmer and ELP. He was in Whitesnake, a whole slew of others. Cozy claims, though, in one early session, he'd asked Tony, hey, do you have any riffs lying around? And apparently Tony Iommi produces a big old bag full of tapes and just dumps them on the counter. And man, what I wouldn't give to be able to play around with that tape bag for a few hours. So now we've got Tony Iommi, we've got the long-standing and ever-faithful Jeff Nichols, Cozy Powell, and Tony Martin, who's finally going to have a chance to flex his creative muscles on the upcoming album, so that's four, so it's a lineup, and it kept enough holdovers in personnel from the Eternal Idol album that there was more of a through line than just the guitarist that refused to give up. And that's pretty promising, right? But if you can believe it, for whatever reason, Tony Iommi was still considering getting yet another singer. But Cozy Powell saved the day, and Tony Martin stayed in place. Sessions for the next Sabbath album would span roughly four months, and I'm not sure if they were waiting for Geezer to jump in and save the day or what, but the resulting album was called Headless Cross, released on IRS Records in April of 1989. It's wild to imagine Black Sabbath as an independent band, but it might help to keep in mind that IRS Records had just given R.E.M. all the creative freedom they wanted, and they used it to propel themselves into an impossible-to-ignore college rock phenomenon who'd eventually become beloved the world over. And as the label owner, Miles Copeland, reportedly offered Tony Iommi full creative control, it's not a stretch to imagine that Black Sabbath just needed a solid temporary home while they proved that their new lineup had the goods. First things first. Did you know that Headless Cross is the name of an actual village in England near Worcester? Assuming I'm saying the town right? I had no idea myself until doing some research on this season, and here's why. Remember what I had said about the lyrics on Eternal Idol, how they kind of sound to me like what someone thinks Black Sabbath is supposed to sing about? Headless Cross quadruples that. This 40-minute platter is basically just Satan, Satan, Satan. 
sure, there's that eternal struggle between good and evil that's always present in Sabbath lyrics, but this one magnifies the most glaringly obvious aspect and mostly sticks to the evil stuff, which could almost make this into a concept album if one wanted to go that far. And I'm pretty sure that the satanic panic people from the 80s looked right at this as like sort of the poster album for their damn movement. And one last thing before I get into the album proper. There's no doubt in my mind that this is the most solid Black Sabbath album as a whole since at least Mob Rules, so please keep that in mind if it seems like I'm ever picking at it a bit. In fact, it's probably the best 40 minutes that Tony Iommi was capable of in 1989, and short of a full reunion of either the original lineup or the Dio lineup, it's actually pretty hard to improve on, but you gotta be married to just loving the production decisions of the time because this record does not shy away from them. So if you're good with a bunch of Lucifer, a return to heavy, heavy form, and a lot of reverb and late 80s mixing decisions, Headless Cross might just be your new favorite Black Sabbath album, and I'd go as far as saying it might even be like top 10 Black Sabbath album material. Yes, the album literally opens the gates of hell. No, seriously, the first track is a synthesizer interlude called The Gates of Hell, and then Cozy's straight-ahead skin-pounding takes over, met with a few riffs that change keys, Tony Martin shows up, and finally gets to let loose with a little personality of his own. Actually, one of the bigger criticisms that I've seen lobbed at Tony Martin is that he's just not a strong enough personality to front Black Sabbath, and you know what, I've even been guilty of saying pretty much the exact same thing on a couple of occasions, but I think that at this stage, the Headless Cross stage, the best thing that the band could have had is a versatile singer that can take on n not just any older material, but also doesn't have the baggage that comes along with fame. In short, he can just serve the band however needed, and he gets the short end of the stick way too often. Now, he's not as immediately engrossing as the first few vocalists, but he's just... He's really fucking good at his job, and since Dio and Ozzy were otherwise occupied, Tony Martin did the impossible from where I'm sitting. He looks to be the glue that even kept the band held together by scotch tape by simply bending to whatever Sabbath needed at the time. Some folks have called him a Dio clone, but... Nah, he seems to add that snarl to his delivery when it's what the song calls for, and I stick by that summation. Tony Martin is the very definition of underrated, period. title track, it's got sort of a heaven and hell rhythmic vibe going on until that completely wacky midsection breakdown where Jeff Nichols really comes to the forefront and it's the last thing you're expecting the song to do, which is exciting because again, as I said earlier, I love being surprised by Black Sabbath albums and this one's doing the job quite nicely. Now, of course you know who everyone would easily assume the song Devil and Daughter would be about, but if Tony Martin was the lyricist for this track, that would seem like some dangerous territory for the new kid to mess with. My gut says it's just a lyric. And hey, this Steve Pilkington book, Black Sabbath Song by Song, it says it was written from a quote, horror film mentality, end quote, so I'm good with that idea. But let me break down some other cool stuff about the track and why it's such a standout here for me. 
First off, you probably picked up that I think Jeff Nichols is just a highly underrated cat within the Sabbath story, and I love hearing him get pushed a bit higher in the mix as he basically doubles the main riff right alongside Tony Iommi, while Cozy Powell brings the galloping tempo that pushes the song over the cliff. When it's time for the chorus, it's not just, hey, let's shout some stuff. Instead, Tony Martin is coming up with some harmonies for background texture that completely sell the track. Tony Iommi ever like lost his mojo when it came to delivering a guitar solo, but Jesus, he is on fire here. on the album, actually let me just get this out of the way now, track 4 is one of those classic loud, quiet, loud builders called When Death Calls, and it contains a guitar solo from one Brian May from the group Queen, and to my knowledge, that would make him the sole guitarist to ever appear on a Black Sabbath record besides Tony Iommi, but beyond that, it's a pretty strong musical composition all the way around. So strong, in fact, that this might be one of the most often performed songs from the Tony Martin era in concert. No mean feat, considering very few of the songs from this period would really stick in set lists. I mean, people do have certain expectations of what they're gonna want to hear at a Black Sabbath concert, but it's a really nice crash course in Act 3 Sabbath, bringing back unexpected tempo changes. I mean, I don't want to spoil it all for you, but it stays kind of muted and creepy on the verses. Tell me not fear of the flames is on his And then somehow it builds into this. think back. Around this period of time, it wasn't uncommon to offer up an extra track on the cassette or CD versions, mostly because vinyl often limited how much music you could fit on any given side, and also because the music industry was legitimately invested in trying to kill off vinyl, as chronicled in the fantastic book Perfecting Sound Forever. But get this, Headless Cross has an extra track, and it follows when death calls, but it's not on the CD, it's on the vinyl. But not just any vinyl. No, you have to track down the picture disc version of Headless Cross to get the song Cloak and Dagger. As a result, I have not heard this track, and it really is one of the more head-scratching moves with this album. Anyone familiar with vinyl records knows that 1. Picture discs are usually just for decoration and are made of completely different materials than a normal record, and they uniformly and mostly sound pretty damned awful, and number 2. The music gets noisier the closer to the center label the needle moves, which ensures that even if you do track it down, it's gonna sound pretty wretched. I mean, probably, I haven't heard it. 
just an educated guess here. I'm not sure why they made this move, but as I've heard that IRS really wasn't up to the task of distributing this album effectively at first, it might have been one of those ways to ensnare collectors and obsessives just to move a few more copies. I don't know, shooting in the dark here, folks. But with that out of the way, Headless Cross is a fairly front-loaded album, but an undeniable return to form, especially listening to all of the really cool tones in the pre-chorus of Call of the Wild. this track was gonna be called Hero, but they had to nip that in the bud because Ozzy Osbourne had just released a song under the same name. I do believe that they might have been reaching a bit to fill out the album though, as they brush up a real obscurity called Black Moon. The song had previously appeared as the b-side of the single for The Shining in the Netherlands, but if you've heard that early skeletal version, it's completely plausible that they just wanted to make it a bit bigger and they succeed in spades. is an underrated statement of purpose from this lineup. They're here, they're taking no prisoners, and we're back to the type of Black Sabbath album where you can almost bank on telling which tracks are going to be the best ones by merely looking at the track timings. The longer the song is, the more epic it has room to be, as evidenced in the songs Killing the Spirit World and the nearly seven minute closer, Nightwing. clear that Black Sabbath lyric writers usually end up with free reign to write about whatever they'd like, even including movies and comic books, so at first I was hoping that Nightwing was going to be a super heavy tribute to Dick Grayson and DC Comics, but yeah, it's probably about an owl. sort of Spanish-inspired guitar solo hasn't been present so evidently since the ending of Symptom of the Universe on Sabotage, and that's that. This ain't the Ozzy era, true. This ain't the Dio era, also true. This ain't the Ian, Glenn, Ray era, none of those. This is a whole new dawn that can encompass bits of the past but is not beholden to it, which is a really exciting prospect. Some tiny drawbacks do abound, like the continued over-reliance on reverb to make things sound big, when again, just a hint more on the low end could have done the job just as well. Though I've only ever heard this one on the original IRS CD because 
as of this taping, which is taking place in early June of 2019, this is dreadfully out of print, and it usually ain't cheap on any format you choose, but I definitely don't have a vinyl copy to compare it to. I'd like to believe that the LP version might add a bit of oomph underneath, but it's nowhere near as shrill as my copy of The Eternal Idol on CD and certainly light years removed from Born Again, so it's really the smallest possible complaint. Headless Cross is a staggeringly good heavy rock record and it's been overlooked for far too long. Now it's time to flesh out the new lineup, like maybe get a bass player as they used a session cat named Lawrence Cottle for this album to keep Geezer's seat warm. And when he never arrived, Cottle's bass parts were never removed. And they're great, still solid as all get out, way better than the Aussie purists would have you believe and now, now Black Sabbath just has to build on this momentum. One of the most passionate defenders of this era of Black Sabbath is Razorfist, the host of Metal Mythos. I was chatting with him, as you heard in the last episode, about the latter-day Sabbath stuff, the stuff that's not covered by the average folks so often, and I was mentioning that I even, though I completely recognize how capable and powerful and great Tony Martin is as a vocalist, I did feel like he was kind of always searching for a personality. I couldn't really define the era, and Razorfist had a completely different read on it, and I think it's an important one. See, I, I disagree on that one. I think you can definitely define the uh, Tony Martin era. I think the character of Tony Martin era came together on tier. It's the power metal era of Black Sabbath. That's what it is. It's, you know, um, Dio had that wizards and dragons and all that shit. It goes to the logical extreme of that. It's it's full power metal. If you listen to the more epic refrains of Tear, it's a power metal album. And there's more than a few moments on Headless Cross that echo that approach. Hell, there's even a few Glory Ride on Eternal Idol, um, you know, stuff like that. Like, absolutely. I would characterize the Tony Martin era as sort of the power metal era. Uh, I mean, these albums are so much of an unstated influence on what became European power metal in the 1990s, which was a big thing. I mean, it kept heavy metal alive throughout a fairly dire decade for heavy metal. So no, no small amount of influence and certainly not without its own importance. You have to remember, like the Tony Martin era may be sort of hollowly regarded in America, but in Europe, these were hit records. They actually were reasonably successful. And uh, this is why they were clear. They were able to break as sort of an international concern because in territories like Germany and Bulgaria and Romania and all these kind of places where they really lean into the power metal sound, the sort of traditional dragons and wizards, Ingve type stuff. Um, these were exactly what they wanted to hear at the time. August of 1990 saw the release of Black Sabbath's 15th studio album, Tear. T-Y-R, and I'm going to tell you right now, this thing is a divisive little bugger. There seem to be two main camps. One faction appears to be a cult following for the album, and it's rather dense dip into runes and Nordic mythology, and they take it very, very seriously. The other faction seems to straight up hate the album. I fall kind of in the middle. I said that I wanted to be surprised by a Black Sabbath album again, and they worked overtime on delivering that very thing, so it's also a bit of a be careful what you wish for deal. Before I get into the album proper, let's talk about the lineup. Get this, it pretty much stayed the same if you can believe it. The only major difference is that they hired Neil Murray to play bass on the Headless Cross tour, and he stuck around in the lineup. 
Beyond that, this is as solid of a lineup as they've had in years, which is promising. They've had time to feel each other out and find a way to grow creatively. Unfortunately, the tours didn't always allow for much creative rejuvenation as they'd rarely play in the US, but it did open them up to the international market, as Razor Fist mentioned, and often, concerts would be outright picketed, protested, or eventually cancelled, sometimes due to high pressure on promoters, sometimes reportedly due to low ticket sales, and sometimes reportedly due to ex-members of the group and their relatives and or spouses uh, things got especially ugly at a projected date in Mexico City, and Neil Murray would later claim that certain jealous factions may have actually enlisted a street team to slap cancelled stickers over the gig posters. I'll give you three guesses on who that supposedly was, though it's pretty hard to substantiate while alternately being very easy to believe. It's also arguable that Headless Cross genuinely might have been the most occult glorifying thing they'd ever done, and some churches still were not out of the satanic panic of the 80s, which is a very real thing, look it up, I lived it, I got stories. But at this point, the only place these five people could shine, I mean, definitively shine, was the studio. You couldn't even guarantee at this point that a Black Sabbath concert could take place. For any number of reasons, that's a good time to bootstrap it in the studio and make something so good that it's undeniable. And the quality of the Tear album is undeniably in the ear of the beholder, but you can't argue that the album doesn't also give you a whole lot to think about, pour through, read up on, and study if you want to. Also very promising, but it's not always for the best. But it helps to keep in mind that first impressions really do matter, especially in music, and okay, here's the thing, I'm telling you, this album is rife with mythology, and I know it'll upset some fans if I don't go heavily into the story, and to you, dear tear cultist, I apologize, but here's why I'm not going to completely immerse myself in whatever Tony Martin is trying to say. Besides, and let me make this perfectly clear, though there is often a running theme throughout, Tear is not a concept album. I repeat, Tear is not a concept album. Why? One reason. If it were, there's simply no explaining the way the attempt at a power ballad called Feels Good to Me, which kind of fits in a musical way, but lyrically throws any storyline in the trash. If Sabbath didn't care enough about a concept to connect all the dots while holding out for a hit single, I'm not going to explore the concept album that this may or may not be in some other folks' eyes. About that song, though, I think it's good to get it out of the way up front because it's genuinely the Achilles heel of the album and my probably biggest problem with the record as a whole. Now, see, I got no problem with power ballads, and as far as they go, this one isn't all that bad or even sappy, but when you see it come together with the video of the blonde lady on the motorcycle following the dude with the long hair in the sports car, it smacks of so many cliches of the day that it comes off as completely calculated, which makes it an even sadder misfire, while not really being all that offensive as an actual song, but possibly the reason most people haven't even heard this album to make up their own minds about it. On the 
positive side, there's a lot more going on in the low end than we've heard in the last couple of records, so thumbs up for that. But if you somehow heard that single first, I couldn't blame anyone for deciding that Black Sabbath was going down a new path that longtime listeners just didn't want to follow. Me, I didn't hear it until I heard Tear in Full. And every single time, the song Feels Good to Me completely yanks me out of the experience. So I don't hate the song by any means, but it simply does not belong here. And if it were somehow removed, you'd have an album that's every bit the equal of Headless Cross. But as it stands, it's merely a worthy successor, it builds on the newfound togetherness, it expands on the sound, it turns Cozy Powell's drums up as loud as humanly freaking possible, it's got a bit of oomph in the low end as I mentioned, and Tony Iommi lets songs build all over the place. And hell, they even flirt with more prog here. There's too much going on in Tears 39 minutes to sell it short over one massive misstep. Take the opening track, Anamundi. It opens with a bit of a harmonic chorus. Then it explodes into one of the slinkiest riffs from Tony Iommi's playbook since Zero the Hero. And then Tony Martin keeps the harmonic glory selling this sucker. Right there, six minutes straight of way better than you expected Black Sabbath. There's only one word for tear, and that word is underrated. Hell, even by me. I feel like if I could spend a good six months with this album, I'd come out the other side being able to pick it apart, separating which god of war was missing the hand and who had to defeat whom, but instead, right now, it's just a hard rock record. An emphasis on hard rock for anyone that thought that Feels Good to Me was representative of this album in full, as evidenced by the full-tilt groover, The Lawmaker. interesting complaint that I've seen lobbed at Tear is that it doesn't sound like Black Sabbath, except on occasion when an unfuckwithable riff peeks through. But the thing is, it does. It's a logical progression from where they've just been, but Cozy and Tony Iommi are co-producing this thing. They're in the driver's seat. But remember, Jeff Nichols and Tony Martin all have influence over the music as well. Expecting them to remind you of Geezer Butler, Ozzy Osbourne, and Bill Ward is your own hang-up, and something that no creative human being should be expected to do. Follow in someone else's footsteps just because you're expected to, and that's a crossroads that I think it's high time to address. If I understand rock and roll at all, basically, you don't end up with a band like Black Sabbath unless they're being pretty damn rebellious with their craft from word one. Expecting them to fall in line and do what you want them to do is the exact opposite of why they're probably creating it all. That's got to be a hard thing for Tony Iommi to reconcile. Fans who want to be surprised at first, but then fight change. 
If they make an album that sounds like the first six Sabbath albums, you and I both know they'd get called out for being washed up and out of ideas. But you go a little outside of the box with something like Tear, and people hate it in some cases before even listening to it. So you might as well just do whatever the hell you want, right? Though on a personal note, I kind of wish Tony Martin had been able to make this a full-on concept album with his lyrics. Pretty much would have guaranteed to have been considered a massive part of the birth of geek rock by an established band there, wouldn't it? I digress. Let's talk about something else like the song The Sabbath Stones. That track is my pick for MVP of the album, though I came really close to giving that honor to Jerusalem just because I like the cut of its jib. But Sabbath Stones is a particular treat because if I can only pick one thing that I wanted to return from Act 1 and 2, it's the stop and turn on a dime tempo changes and this track, yeah. I mean, just that riff alone is pretty much enough to sell it. But it's not just the killer riff into the faster part of the track that does it for me. It's that stop-start intro where they decide to coat Tony Martin's voice with a bit of a reverse echo effect that really suits the subject matter, like a voice from the past trying to tell ancient stories before they're lost forever. track seems settled at first, it's a doomy chugger that breaks down into really nice pastoral acoustic work, and overall, the Sabbath Stones marks a major return to form fitting the content, as well as just being like a musical Mack truck. only allowed one word to describe tier, that word would be the dreaded underrated. But assuming that I got two words, the second one would be epic. Because when you get to the three-headed attack of the Battle of Tyr, Odin's Court, and Valhalla, it's a nine-minute flirtation with Prague that you just can't describe as anything but epic. Now call me crazy, but the last time that the band had a bunch of songs that all flowed together with subheader titles was pretty early on, wasn't it? What I'm getting at is that I can't come up with any reason to dislike Tear as a whole if you already like Black Sabbath. I can see where the abundance of slower material might surprise you at first, but it only takes one playthrough of the album to know that anything docile is only there to explode later on, especially in another major highlight of that mini prog suite, Valhalla. criticism I've heard is that Cozy Powell's drums are just supposedly too damn loud, drowning everyone else out, and okay, I'll admit, his drums are certainly way up front, but I don't personally see it as a problem, besides, I can hear everything else just fine personally, even including the contributions of Jeff Nichols behind a classic Iomi solo.
so odd that I'd feel so defensive about this album. I guess the years of hearing from people that this era was totally disposable, unnecessary, and just flat out bad? Well, now that I'm hearing how much work they're all putting in just to keep the Sabbath machine running at all, and considering that the tour for Tear never even made it to U.S. shores, they certainly aren't doing this for the money. This is a passion project. It doesn't suck. It's different. It's not as groundbreaking, sure, but with the amount of people that claim that Black Sabbath invented heavy metal, how many times would people expect Tony Iommi to catch lightning in a bottle like that? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The saddest part of this is, even if you do want to take a couple of listens to tear or really, a lot of this era, again, I'm recording this in 2019, and currently the only Tony Martin-era album that seems to be in print is The Eternal Idol. This stuff is hard to just stumble upon, and as the years go on, as the belief mounts that there's nothing of note in this era, it's only going to be a harder and harder sell if they ever do come back into print. What label is going to pick up Black Sabbath albums that the average consumer either claims to dislike, or even worse, might have no idea it exists or ever existed in the first place? Regardless, Tear rewards repeated listening. At first, I was totally lost with the thing. After really mulling it over and giving it some time to sink in, I feel confident in saying purely from my own opinion, if Tear was only given a cursory glance, I get that it might not have grabbed you by the face in the first 45 seconds. But I can also say that if you're this deep in a podcast about one man trying to make sense of what Black Sabbath's trajectory is, armed with only the records and some supplemental reading material, Tear's an album for you, you wonderful nerd. This episode is going to be really dense. There's a lot to cover, and let me tell you, we're not even done. This may be Act 3, Part 2, but that would lead you to expect a curtain call, wouldn't it? And you'd be right to expect Black Sabbath to have a curtain call like no other. But unfortunately, what we're hitting on here is one of the most confusing periods of time for Black Sabbath. I'm not going to mince words about it. You're probably going to hear some things that are true, some things that are untrue, some things that we think are true. You might hear some information repeated a couple of times, but maybe in the wrong place, because yeah, there are just that many puzzle pieces here. I don't know any other way to just do this other than to jump right in to talking about the album Dehumanizer. Yes, it's true, when we left off, the band had just put out the album Tear. The lineup was Neil Murray, Cozy Powell, Tony Martin, Tony Iommi, Jeff Nichols. 
Then an album drops out of the sky called Dehumanizer. And it's on Warner Brothers. But Black Sabbath just became an independent band. What gives? Where do we even start? The 16th Black Sabbath studio album is called Dehumanizer. It was released in the summer of 1992 on both IRS Records and Warner Reprise. It's a lot of different things. If you're a very casual Sabbath fan, this is likely the one you remember being kind of a blip on the pop culture radar around this time. And if you're hardcore, well, you know that I could spend an entire series trying to work just this album out. It's complicated. I have yet to see any story that matches 100% with anyone else's. I'm going to do my best to whittle down at least the origins here. I should tell you up front, as I've been mentioning through this season, I knew that shit had to get a little sideways around the time of Dehumanizer. There's just kind of no way you shuffle lineups this much, and it isn't kind of confusing and someone doesn't kind of get screwed. But I didn't know just how deeply it ran until I was watching that documentary I keep talking about, Black Sabbath, Metal Mythos. Now this was just me doing some research for the season, and I went... Oh god, I thought Dehumanizer was just a sort of anomaly in the catalog. Oh no. No, this is one deep, deep well. So I've asked the host of Metal Mythos, Razorfist, to jump in and kind of give his own read on the situation. We're going to do that in just a few minutes. I've also got some commentary given to me by someone in a position to know. Look forward to that. All right. Deep breath. Let's go. Geezer Butler went and did some work with Ozzy, and he showed up to play Neon Knights with Dio's solo band. And look, I could go through everyone's individual history, but let's cut to the chase. Dehumanizer sees the return of Ronnie James Dio on vocals, Vinny Apice on drums, Geezer is back on bass, and Jeff Nichols is probably in there somewhere. So basically, say hello to the return of the Mob Rules lineup. What happened to Neil Murray? He's not too sure, even years later, according to Mick Wall's Symptom of the Universe book, whereas Steve Pilkington's Sabbath Song by Song book intimates that Neil was the one who suggested that Geezer comes back in the first place. What happened to Tony Martin? Well, stick around. And what happened to Cozy Powell? Well, beyond the reports that he and Ronnie James Dio couldn't get along, a horse fell on him and broke his pelvis, so probably a little of each column. Mostly, what everyone's individual stories have in common is that if they aren't on this album, the phone just pretty much stopped ringing one day, or possibly rang just as they were about to leave to go to the recording studio, or to get on a plane, or even the goddamn stage. I mean, really, this is a passive-aggressive bunch, and considering the path to getting Dehumanizer out in the world took about a year and a half, those passive-aggressive actions must have seemed like absolute torture for the more proactive sorts in the Sabbath camp, because, spoiler alert, there's plenty proof to substantiate that Tony Martin might have still been involved to an extent, and because of the back-and-forth nature of this reunion that almost wasn't but then was but few were very happy about it, they might have even begun a completely different album in the interim. However, to tell you that up front would distract and detract from Dehumanizer as an album, and that's not fair at all because, one, this is discography, and two, well, most of what you can read about it now is through a bunch of revisionist thinking, and it's marred by what happened in its wake. Or what might have happened, it's complicated. Like I said, no one can really agree, and as far as I can tell, that even extends to the fan's eye view of the record, so 
No, not this time. Maybe I'll talk about all that muck in a bit, but I'm just going to say what needs to be said. I'm recording this in 2019, and while Dehumanizer is clearly lyrically influenced by Asimov and other sci-fi properties, as the band reportedly gave Ronnie a rule that he could not write about rainbows anymore... It's really right here in the age of Alexa, Siri, Google Voice, the UK TV show Jam, and Black Mirror that the album makes even more sense as a cautionary tale. Dio warned when talking about the record that it spoke of things to come, as well as things that might already be happening, and, uh, Dio wasn't wrong. Dio had also made mention that they'd possibly made an album that was far too heavy for the time, I don't personally see it that way, since downtune metal always had at least a small place in the angsty suburbs when grunge and alternapop weren't cutting it for everyone. I mean, sure, legacy acts didn't fare so well in America sales-wise in this period, but this is a few years after, barely, Pantera's Cowboys from Hell and around the time of Danzig getting mainstream radio play, so from where I'm sitting, Dehumanizer was actually just right for the times. It's just potentially a different sort of heaviness than longtime fans might have expected or hoped for, but make no mistake, it's prime cut, grade A Sabbath, and it takes no prisoners from the first damn cut, Computer God. <laughs> even have to tell you that Geezer is back? There he is, owning the Sabbath stomp, bringing back the tasty bass runs, and setting the lyrical theme right off the bat, while Vinny brings back an approximation of the good old Sabbath stomp, though maybe his drums are a bit brighter than the track calls for. But then again, I'm not really sure how else his kit could have cut through, since the high-frequency ranges seem to be plenty preoccupied with the return of the authoritative voice of Ronnie James Dio, and those wonderful, wonderful turnarounds. And hey, look, muddled origins or not, this genuinely sounds like a band. Tony is just ripping it up, but it sounds like Tony playing on a Black Sabbath song instead of, well, the Tony Iommi and Cozy Powell show, which yeah, admittedly sometimes Tear kinda did sound that way, and in fairness, it's hard to look at the few preceding albums almost any other way when you hear these four powers combined again. That's not a slight on Headless Cross or Tear, but rather, if Tony runs the show, he seemed to miss being in an everyone pulls an equal amount of weight type of band. Because ultimately, this is his call, right? That's a bit of a song called After All, and I mean, you are hearing this, right? The sludgy stuff is back, the vocalist just completely owns the material. It feels like classic Sabbath, while clearly looking forward, even really changing up how a Sabbath chorus usually resolves, with this one seeming to go into a minor key, but Ronnie leads them instead into a more victorious and triumphant major key resolution.
time I come crashing in with a controversial opinion, I don't have anything against the songs called TV Crimes and Time Machine. I promise, they're cool and heavy as all get out, but I swear if you remove them, two of the most upbeat and driving tunes here, you'd be left with a doomy eight song masterpiece of heaviness. That said, they're here and it's just that they they break up the flow a little too much for me, and this is why I think the album doesn't quite become strong enough to rise above what came in its wake in most people's eyes. As much as the runs before the chorus of, say, TV crimes might rule, it does make the album a bit muddled and seemingly indecisive on a direction, despite doing quite well as a standalone single in the UK. said when I get to hear TV Crime removed from the album, I love it as a track and ditto Time Machine, which much like the song Mob Rules, was originally written and recorded for a film soundtrack. This time the culprit was Wayne's World, and that's a better idea on paper than it seems, because remember it basically relaunched Queen as a going concern for the masses in America, so that was not the worst move. Trouble is that it doesn't totally fit with the rest of Dehumanizer, though it's a fine song in its own right. me appreciate everything else here on a different level because when you're coming out of the song TV Crimes and then you're greeted with the riff from Letters from Earth, forget about it. guys know what a legacy they're up against because even though it might have originated from Geezer's solo band, it doesn't take a hardcore Sabbath historian to make a connection between the title of the song Master of Insanity and another classic Sabbath title, you know? And it's not the strongest track here by any means, but it's oddly comforting, these lyrics about the sort of man behind the curtain that controls and engages every evil, bad, or flat-out dumb thing that happens, framing a wicked rhythmic breakdown coming out of the chorus. triumphs here emerge in the form of songs like Sins of the Father, a song that starts so unbelievably melodic you wouldn't believe it wasn't plucked from the cutting room floor of, say, the sabotage sessions, but then the song settles into its groove and seems to lyrically focus on nearly every aspect of a Medea complex from any given party, which, let me tell you, as a person who has survived the ugly end of just such a thing, it makes this song even more effectively haunting than the band probably ever intended. From there, 
there, the album does seem to lyrically slip into a battle of ego versus id in all too promising tracks like Too Late and I. And look, I could talk about this record all day long, but by now, you've either got your mind made up on this album, possibly with years of history behind you, or you're like, okay, Mark, I get it. You dig this record on a more instant and guttural level than the last few, and that'd be a pretty good read on how it feels for me. The thing is that there's no denying that here in Act 3 of Sabbath, I've been sitting front row watching Tony Iommi regain continuity for his brand name, watching it come together slowly but surely with Tony Martin, Cozy Powell, and Jeff Nichols, but then this band, against all odds, just drops an album out of the sky that sounds like they've never stopped playing together? It's accidental, but there's also no accident here. When the chemistry works, it works, and if there's any real Achilles heel to dehumanize her, it's that this album is already great and so promising for the future, but knowing what's to come, that promise is not to be built upon. The future will look different for Black Sabbath, while our actual current future looks a lot like the one described in Dehumanizer. They were on to something. Really, really onto something here. No matter how much drama it took to make it happen, and how much drama happened in its wake, this album is the only taste of that promise we're gonna get. That's the opening riff to the song Buried Alive, one of those songs born of pretty confusing circumstances, but it's one of the best tracks here and it's almost like a parting gift to folks that want just one more taste of some classic Sabbath grooves and lyrical concepts before things would become very, very different, but there's still that question of, where did it really originate? Okay, look, if I really gotta find some genuine fault with Dehumanizer, I guess the cover art of the robotic Grim Reaper looks a little silly, but, I mean, not compared to the cover of Born Again, so I'm not even about to nitpick that. Look, when looking at Dehumanizer as a standalone heavy album, there's just no denying that it's pretty great. When looking at it as a part of the Sabbath canon, well, yeah, it's confusing, and when you try to chronologically make sense of what must have been going on behind the scenes, Oh, it's a complete and total mindfuck, and yes, you guessed right that we can't move on until we try to make sense of the fallout, but before we do that, let me just state for the record that Dehumanizer works quite well in 2019 and is far better than I've ever seen it credited as being. If you like heavy music, it doesn't carry many of the production hallmarks of the time besides the insistence of mixing the drums super brightly, meaning that sonically it's fairly timeless. Whatever you think of any era of Sabbath as a general rule, do not sleep on Dehumanizer. It's worth your time, and it absolutely solidifies the Dio, Iomi, Butler, Nichols, Apathy lineup as being every bit as valid for the Black Sabbath name as any other lineup, and possibly more so in some cases. But let's get on with this old shebang. I really, really did not want to get into the drama, but there is too much that intertwines Dehumanizer and its follow-up record cross-purposes, and we gotta get it all out. 
How we're going to do this is I'm going to tell you what I think I know. <laughs> yes, what I think I know to the best of my understanding. Then I'm going to turn it over to Razor Fist, and he's going to tell you the situation to the best of his understanding. There will be some overlap. That's because nobody really knows for sure. Okay, let's try it. First things first, I beg of you. Please do not shoot the messenger on this one. I've looked high and low, and pretty much no one has the exact same story. So if I'm a little off about something, keep that in mind, as well as... Again, this is discography. Spilling the tea isn't exactly something I'm too practiced at. Dehumanizer was released to a mixed reaction from both fans and critics, to say the least. One of the biggest criticisms lobbed at the album was... Get this. It was a little too modern and supposedly taking inspiration from then-current bands like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and the like. However, I don't really see the band doing anything all that different. They've always down-tuned since at least the third record. They've always played with sludgy tempo changes and odd time signatures, and... Well, I ask you to remember the story about John Lennon deciding to get back into the studio when he first heard Rock Lobster by the B-52s. He heard the wild lady voices, and he felt that the mainstream had caught up to Yoko and decided that they were ready for what they had wanted to do all along. And I think that the same exact thing applies here. All those grunge bands name-checked Sabbath as an inspiration, and if that's what's all over the radio, then yeah. If Sabbath fell victim to anything, it was finally kind of fitting in with the mainstream and... Maybe the first time ever, really. But here's where it's going to get weird and cloudy. Dehumanizer was allegedly so troubled that the band ended up actually calling Tony Martin when they were at any sort of impasse with Ronnie James Dio. Some claim that there may even be a slew of recordings of Dehumanizer songs with Tony Martin on lead vocals, but even if that's the case, I would guess that the words would be pretty different because Dio seemed to be a little bit precious about what he would sing, which is a good thing because I am really starting to appreciate the fact that Ronnie James Dio is such a straight shooter. Speaking of which, he told the band in no uncertain terms that he would not be available for the last two shows on the Dehumanizer tour. But it wasn't just because he had other plans or he didn't feel like it. No. Around this time, Ozzy Osbourne kicked off what was reportedly his final tour. And not because he wanted a payday necessarily, but because he'd been mistakenly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. He thought his life was over. And I think he wanted to sing with Black Sabbath one more time at the final gigs of the No More Tours tour in Costa Mesa, California in 1992. But where Ronnie took exception is that the guys weren't just showing up for a mind-blowing encore. They were expected to open the show, too. Ronnie's had enough of living in Ozzy's shadow, I'm sure, but to his mind, if the original four-piece is the last thing people see, it would be such a slap in the face to all the hard work and killer music he'd just made with the band. And that's not even bringing up that Ozzy used to hang dwarves named Ronnie on stage. He saw it as a concerted effort to break the lineup up, and in his opinion, it worked. So for the last two shows of the Dehumanizer tour, they were sung and fronted by none other than Rob Halford of Judas Priest fame. By the end of each show, you'd see Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, Bill Ward, and Ozzy Osbourne playing a scoop of original classics. And of course, everyone starts speculating that there would be a full-scale reunion of the original lineup now. And of course, Ozzy found out he was misdiagnosed and decided not to retire. So there were some talks about that very speculation. And of course, that didn't come to be. 
exactly right then. I have no idea why, but I'd bet on, quote, management issues. So depending on who and what you want to accept as the story, the following album cross-purposes could be a slew of dehumanizer leftovers, and the only confirmed session dates I've found is just a generic, this was recorded in 1993, and I'm sure that co-producer Leif Masses could shine some light on it, but that's assuming that the passive-aggressive bunch were straight with him, or vice versa. I mean, who the hell knows? Some have even speculated that cross-purposes may have been concurrently recorded with Dehumanizer. For me, the only reason that doesn't quite hold weight is because Bobby Rondinelli is the credited drummer on Cross Purposes. And if you've seen the demands that his manager was supposedly making of the band, like having his own separate limo on call at all times, and this would mean that there'd have to be two Black Sabbaths literally simultaneously, like two secret families, and somehow Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler would have had the energy and time to make those things happen, and that Bobby Rondinelli's demands from his own management may have had to be met to some extent just to keep him at bay and keep that all a secret, though he wasn't technically doing anything with the band in the public's eye at the time, it's a little hard to believe, but I guess it's not the most impossible feat in the world, just rather unlikely. My guess is that, yeah, some unused dehumanizer ideas probably found their way onto cross purposes, but with Tony Martin being the main lyricist there, I, I gotta admit, it's all possible, but not totally plausible. I think the most likely thing is that Ozzy strung them along, but in the meantime, they owed IRS some albums, and as Tony Martin was such an ever-faithful supporter and team player, no one needed to twist his arm to quickly come back to keep Sabbath's head above water while they waited to see what Ozzy was ultimately going to decide to do. And now here's Razorfist's take on the situation. Apparently, my understanding, and, and a lot of this is from geezer butler basically there was th there's this kind of perception that like dio and sabbath rejoined because by god they just couldn't stay apart not true warner brothers put them together um the the tony martin era was working musically right it just commercially wasn't working so well which frankly irs records and the fact that they were mid collapse at that time and really didn't have the resources to push Sabbath had as much to do with that as anything um, materially within Black Sabbath in terms of the musical quality. But Dehumanizer was basically engineered. It was almost like a supergroup. If you think about it, the record company approached them. Hey, if you guys will come back together, we will give you a record. We will push it to the moon. And Warner Brothers certainly got behind Dehumanizer like they pushed it really hard. There's a lot of this is one of the reasons I kind of scoff at the idea. Oh, grunge killed him off. It's like the record company pushed this record pretty hard. Like they wanted it to succeed. Um, it, that, it really wasn't for lack of trying in this case, uh, which you can't say for a lot of metal bands and albums uh, during this era. But my understanding was they sort of did it for the money. Uh, that's the reason they originally got together. And because that was the impetus for them getting back together, the fences really hadn't been mended. Plus, I think Dio at that time was sort of he was kind of in midlife crisis mode. And, and Dio's been sort of candid about this uh, as well. And he in many years since where he was talking about how like, he was feeling old. You know what I mean? Like he was feeling like out of place in his own band in a way. And it didn't feel like it was working. He did get a little precious at the end of the day. I think he was a little insecure in his place, not just in Sabbath, but just in music in general. Um, I know he has made numerous statements talking about how 
he felt like Dio wasn't terribly relevant at that time. And he felt like Sabbath was in the same boat. You know, Dio was a guy who didn't really mince words. So I would imagine he carried some of that attitude into the recording sessions. And from what I understand, and I've heard many anecdotes on this subject, Geezer Butler specifically, I believe, mentioned that there were times that Dio literally would not allow them to be in the same room when he was doing vocal melodies. And that was one of the big bones of contention was like, how are we supposed to collaborate on this song? If you, you won't even let us be in the room when you're doing your vocal melodies. And that was the real problem they were having. So the story, as I understand it is they sent Dio off to England to, he was visiting his wife or whatever. He was going to have a vacation and they brought in Tony Martin on the sly and started recording. Now, I am, I don't know if they did completely different vocal melodies. I suspect they didn't. And that's probably why everyone's a little cagey about whether or not Tony Martin re-recorded the whole album and whether or not there's a whole version with his vocals on it. Because if you contribute vocal melodies to a song, you are a songwriter. I think maybe Tony Martin and Dio had the same vocal melodies and they don't want to give Tony Martin the royalties. Possibly that's why they're not so upfront in admitting it. That's just my suspicion, though. Who knows? Uh, but I do know that he was brought in and that he did record and that, um, I, you know, a lot of people have extrapolated. Maybe they started working on ideas from cross purposes at this time, but I don't see why they would sit on perfectly good material. I do know they kind of had two lineups of Black Sabbath going at the same time in a weird way, right? Like the dehumanizer lineup was cutting that record. And then the Tony Martin band, he was sort of back in the band, but he wasn't. So the idea was they sort of had this nebulous other lineup that was like, okay, well, when we're done here, I guess we'll go back to you guys. It was really awkward and, and it's really emblematic of how Tony Martin was treated like in general uh, within the band during this time, because, you know, people talk about Dio and and Ozzy and, and the whole thing where Dio didn't want to open for Ozzy. And that's what led to the breakup of Dehumanizer. Everybody kind of obsesses about that. But there's sort of an untold story in there that not a lot of people talk about where Tony Martin was supposed to come in when Dio refused to sing that show. They weren't originally going to have Rob Halford do it. They were going to have Tony Martin come up. Ozzy has a thing and Sharon has a thing with Tony Martin. I don't know what their deal is. He seems like a perfectly affable sort to me, but they just have a. every time Tony Martin's name comes up. It's like they immediately have sort of an adverse reaction. So they wind up suggesting that they go with Rob Halford was actually Ozzy's suggestion and Sharon's suggestion from what I understand. So Tony Martin, who's ready to go, is suddenly told probably actually I, I believe it was geezer butler's wife who is also sort of a managerial figure um that if if tony martin shows up not only is tony martin's service is not required if he shows up to the show he will be arrested this is my understanding of the situation it's more than one person who has said this um and more than one book that discusses it many in sort of veiled illusions but god can you imagine like tony martin was always there there is not one instance of Tony Martin canceling a show over vocal issues or pitchiness or bitchiness or anything. 
right? He utter professional. And this is basically the treatment that he received in return. However you feel about Tony Martin as a singer, um, I mean, my goodness. Really can't recommend Razor Fist's Black Sabbath Metal Mythos documentary enough. Really good two hour watch available on YouTube. And he's not kidding about the treatment that Tony Martin received. I mean, it. You can't really audibly hear it on the record, so I don't want to get too into it. As a matter of fact, I did think, well, what if we could get Tony Martin on the show, right? Then we could just ask him. He could say it, and then we could put all these queries to rest forever, right? So discography boss Cat Blackard, she sent Tony Martin a Facebook message asking, hey, here's what we're doing. Would you like to come on board? Tony's first response was, and I quote, Hey, thanks for getting in touch. I'm not sure I can help with this. I am writing a book about my career at the moment, and I really don't want to give anything away. In principle, I don't have a problem and would normally gladly help, so for now I must pass on this one. There's a lot to tell about that era and the albums in it that only I can reveal, so I wish I was able to contribute. Okay, so at that very moment, Cap texts me sends me a screenshot of this conversation, and I go, wow, well, hey, we have a scoop here. Tony Martin's writing a book. Cool. But Cap says, hey, are you sure you don't want any really specific questions? Just a couple things to see if we can get a few words. Folks, I'm going to read you Tony Martin's direct statements to us straight out of Facebook Messenger. I mean, this is 2019. This is how we got the information. I'm going to share it with you. This is as much as we know. This is the best I can tell you. And it begins now. Tony says, okay, let me just touch on these. It's somewhat deeper, but they did call me to have a run at Dehumanizer. They got me in the studio and I did try it out, but time was short. And so I suggested they continue with what they had done. But Iomi said they weren't happy with Ronnie. What the actual reason was, I can't elaborate on here. Cross Purposes was a standalone album for us. No other was being worked on. Although Geezer and Iomi had other things going on. In fact, Geezer played some tracks of his solo stuff to me. The Tony Martin era is out of print. When the record deal expired, they did not reissue any of it. There's been a long-standing battle over the name that we all know about. They went to court to solve it, and they did come out with an agreement, but it really boiled down to the fact that the Sabbath name could only be used when Iomi and or Ozzy was in the band and no one else, not until they finished their joint ventures with Sabbath could Tony reissue that era. However, he's very content where he is, and just not in a rush to do much with it, so it sits waiting for the attention it needs to get it back out there. And before you ask, Eternal Idol is owned by someone else. End quote. That's it. That's our quote from Tony Martin about this whole situation. So does it really answer a whole lot? No, but the good news is he's planning to write a book about it. So we might actually have some legit information someday. That's good enough for me. Let's move right the hell on to the next album, shall we? The album known as Cross Purposes would see the light of day in January of 1994, the 17th Black Sabbath studio album, another entry into their tenure on IRS Records, and man, this is definitely a love it or hate it record. 
On one hand, I take a gander at fan reviews from, say, Metal Archives, and I'll see a touching story about a guy who had only heard the album Heaven and Hell, and he liked that, so he picked this one up. He didn't have a huge monolithic history to compare it against, he just liked it. If only we could all experience these things in a standalone way, looking at them as individual works, but the human mind just doesn't work that way, and neither do brand names, and neither does discography, so your lineup this time out is Tony Iommi on guitar, Geezer Butler on the bass, Jeff Nichols on the keys, Tony Martin back on the vocals, and drummer Bobby Rondinelli, who had played with the Scorpions and Quiet Riot, not to mention... Rainbow. But not when Dio was in the band, rather like the uh, Joe Lynn Turner years, but still, impressive resume and a killer drummer to boot. The credits say that this was a co-production between Sabbath themselves and Leif Masses. I hope I'm pronouncing Leif's name right. Leif had been the engineer on some Latter-day Zeppelin albums, as well as having mixed tier, so he's definitely the right guy for this job and this lineup on this label. But here's the deal. Cross Purposes is a pretty all-over-the-map album, and where that really worked for me on Dehumanizer, here it begins to sound like a genuine identity crisis. There's moments that sound very, well, Black Sabbath-y, and then there's moments that do sound a little bit like actually trying to keep up with what the kids are listening to, and a few moments that I'm just flat-out baffled by. The trouble is that it doesn't really congeal into one big pile of vibe. It seems to be more in search of a direction rather than just doing a whole bunch of things that are snuggly in Sabbath's wheelhouse, which, again, most of what people would consider the tie-ins to grunge and the like are really just things that Sabbath had pretty much done all along, tuning down the guitars, switching between 4-4 and something a little wackier to finish the riff, using lots of thirds, sevenths, and ninths in the harmonics, like Alice in Chains, so on and so forth. Basically... There's also nothing here that Sabbath hasn't done before in some way, and that's also the trouble. They rarely sound like that fits like a glove. When it's good, it's great and everything I want out of a Sabbath record. When it's not as good, well, I kind of wish I didn't have to talk about those moments at all. And listen, straight up, when I came into Cross Purposes, I'd never heard a note of it, and I was ready to just let it take me wherever it was going to take me. On paper, I was really excited by the idea of Tony Iommi, who'd been there the whole time, Geezer, who really does seem to bring the very best out of Mr. Iommi, Jeff Nichols, who first came on board during the Heaven and Hell era, Tony Martin from the latter-day periods, and a completely new person on drums. In short, this could have and should have ruled. There's someone from every single phase of their career here with just enough new blood to ignite a forward-thinking fire. I'm pretty sure you've figured out by now that the sum did not end up being greater than the individual parts to my ears, but it's also far better than the general reputation of the Tony Martin-funded eras would have you believe if you were just guessing, and even better than my tone of voice is probably leading you to believe. It's a tough record to take a hard and fast stance on, but hey, that's what I signed up for with this season, so let's get moving. A song kicks this record off called Eyewitness, and it's a neat little rocker with a musical ascension of notes between Tony Iommi and Jeff Nichols. While Geezer and Bobby hold the rhythm steady, Tony Martin spins the verses in his lower ranges, taking himself up and register just a bit with each passing verse. I still wouldn't say that he's got an immediately identifiable personality, but damn, he's a good singer. I 
that Bobby Rondinelli can clearly do that hi-hat trailing that is so integral to the Black Sabbath sound and swing, but also finds a way to fill in gaps with exciting roles that you wouldn't have expected from anyone else who previously occupied his chair. Eyewitness isn't the best song of all time or anything, but it's an exciting and promising kickoff. But hey, let's backtrack for a minute. You know how I've been mentioning that one of the prerequisites for maintaining a place in any Sabbath lineup is the ability to be incredibly passive-aggressive, and how that seems to fight against what I've also said about Sabbath lyrics, which is basically if they want you to know something, they aren't shy about telling you? You might ask yourself how those two things can coexist. I wouldn't blame you, but then I'd point you to the chorus of the song Psychophobia. It's too late now! It's time to Kiss the rainbow goodbye? I mean, come on, that's just as plain as the nose on Pete Townsend's face. It's clearly a dig at Dio, and if it wasn't, they had to know it'd be taken that way. The rest of the tune is a short little rocker that barely makes it past three minutes, and hey, contextually, some of the rest of the lyrics might allude to worshipping unworthy cult leaders, so I might be totally off here. I know what I hear, I know what it made me think of, and I stand by that, but fortunately, that's just about the only petty dig to be found here. If you're looking for something more along the lines of a slow builder like you'd have gotten on Headless Cross or Tear that starts off kinda light, with the band eventually exploding into the heavy payoff, look no further than the powerful Cross of Thorns. Sometimes I wonder what goes on there behind those eyes. I especially dig here is that they've really started mixing Jeff Nichols high enough that you can really appreciate the vibe he constantly brings this band. It'd be foolish to pretend for a second that Black Sabbath isn't the Tony Iommi show, especially at this point, but man, Jeff Nichols is starting to emerge as a secret weapon, isn't he? Every time I really, really notice the keyboards on any Sabbath composition post-1980, it's always because they're doing something ruthlessly cool and never feeling like an intrusive mess. Bless you, Jeff Nichols. Anyways, there is one kind of weird thing about Cross of Thorns, and that's the fact that they clearly decided to make the song much shorter at some point. It might have been a 10 minute epic for all I know, but all I can tell you is that for some unknown reason, they made a choice to do this fade out in the middle of a verse that was pretty likely about to build into something else. I'm not kidding either, I'm not doing an early fade out, let me show you the fade out exactly as it is. It's a cross of thorns. When a promise is Okay, so I'm not crazy, right? Am I alone here? Does this not seem like one of the strangest production decisions that anyone could have made here, and not the good kind of strange? 
It's just a real head scratcher on an album full of head scratchers, but unfortunately, it affects one of the clear album highlights. But look, my choice for the MVP of this album, and hell, one of the best moments of Act 3 of Black Sabbath, full stop, it's the monolithically slow grooves of the song Virtual Death, kicking off with Geezer setting the mood before exploding into the demented heaviness to follow. section where the band stops and starts while Tony Martin harmonizes with himself and look, no one who enjoys Sabbath on any level should be capable of hearing this and denying just how hard it rules. do I love the reclamation of the types of harmonies that, yes, were all over rock records in 94, but this time, it's by the cats that inspired it in the first place. I love that Bobby Rondinelli seems to know that the ultimate key to being a timekeeper from Black Sabbath is so simple that it's easy to forget. Often, what matters most is what you don't play. I've always found that to be my favorite thing about Bill Ward and Mr. Rondinelli as a really capable fit for pretty much any period that this lineup wants to touch on. And though I've heard that IRS was working this record a little harder than they might have done in the past, I can't come up with a single reason why this song wasn't the obvious choice to try and market to radio and MTV. You may think this existence is just a human weakness inside my mind it's I mean, look, if Angry Chair by Allison Chains would be all over radio and TV at the time, there's literally no excuse that this song couldn't have been pushed the exact same way. If I had to guess one reason that they wouldn't have done that, I'd have to go with the fact that it wouldn't be terribly representative of what the album is like as a piece. Though I don't suppose that ever stopped them from marketing power ballads as singles, so no, never mind, I got nothing. I'm just saying, not marketing the song Virtual Death as a single in 1994 was a big honking mistake in retrospect, but hey, they marketed the song Back to Eden instead, and that song's no slouch either, but Virtual Death could have at least been a follow-up, right? I mean, I do get why Back to Eden seemed like a cool choice, especially with that slinky, slinky riff. while Back to Eden ain't bad by any stretch, it's just not even close to being the most engrossing track here, especially if you're trying to grab attention that Black Sabbath is back, you know? If you want something with those wacky meter changes that are followed up by a breakneck change of pace, you'll have to dig to the center of the album and the woefully underrated track Immaculate Deception.
elsewhere, I think it's safe to say that albums like Cross Purposes are the exact reason anyone would have ever coined the phrase mixed bag in the first place. Hell, even on Tony Iommi's solos, well, yeah, he's obviously a killer guitarist, but the solos don't even seem as inspired or as fiery, even when the tempos are really calling for it. sure it still rules but this is what i was talking about hitting all the right notes he's technically really precise here he's doing an amazing job but is the passion there in the vibe i don't really hear it as much and that's kind of what troubles me here obviously tony iomi wants to keep going because otherwise why would he have even entered talks to get something going with the original lineup unfortunately okay look this pains me to say it but I'm just gonna say it outright, and y'all can do whatever you want with my opinion. Tony Iommi sounds like his heart is only about halfway in this album, and it's pretty easy to figure out when he's phoning something in. Steve Pilkington mentions that the song Dying for Love may have been inspired by a Yugoslavian revolution, but on first listen, it's hard to notice anything but Black Sabbath going full Lee Greenwood here. It's just so heavy-handed lyrically, while the musical bed is so clearly a lighter wave in ballad. Sing your songs, rock the nation, right to wrongs. When you take a life and steal a shell. And weirdly, the highlight of the song Dying for Love, which, by the way, is four seconds shy of being the longest song on Cross Purposes, is the soulful solo that unexpectedly opens the track over some nice atmosphere. And one could argue that this song could have been stronger as a full instrumental vehicle. Completely, there's been rumors for years that Eddie Van Halen either secretly co-wrote or played uncredited guitar on the closing song, Evil Eye, though Tony Iommi stresses in his autobiography that he did jam with Eddie and even tried to record a part of it, but something malfunctioned and it was never captured. That said, I'm pretty sure that these solos sounding so much more immediate and passionate than they often do elsewhere on the record might be why someone might have even considered that it wasn't Tony. Elsewhere on the track, you'd get to hear a little bit of grit in Tony Martin's voice, and that's really cool because it totally fits the song. But it's also kind of indicative of why I think the masses never really seem to accept him as the Black Sabbath vocalist. On a technical level, you'd simply have to make something up to even begin to criticize Tony Martin's vocal abilities. But to be an effective frontman requires something resembling a stable personality, something that the audience can bank on and expect, even if your personality is just to be unstable. Like, I don't know, Morrissey or something. Just something a bit more magnetic. And I think that Tony Martin was just too much of a blank slate. A great slate, mind you, but a relatively blank one nonetheless that had one problem, and that's that he could do anything. 
He does what's needed, but rarely do you get to go, aha, that is why I love Tony Martin, and that's kind of that. I love the guy overall, and I've never seen anyone that ever worked with him refer to him as anything less than being a consummate professional or a class act on every conceivable front, but <sighs> go ahead, watch the live video that they put out from this tour. It's not really that hard to find virally, and see what I mean, by this time he's had seven or eight years to figure out what Black Sabbath needs up front live, and he still just kind of comes off as the fill-in singer. I really wish it weren't this way, he'll never not be underrated. But there's hardly any way to really properly rate him with Sabbath, if that makes sense. He's great. Sabbath is great. Did it always congeal? No. But it also, in my eyes, never always congealed with any lineup. So take it with a grain of salt. In short, Tony Martin's a team player, and possibly too much of one. If he would have projected a bit more ego onto his job, I think the argument would be Ozzy versus Dio versus Tony Martin instead of just the predictable barroom argument of Dio versus Ozzy. Now please understand up front, I do not belong to the anti-Tony Martin albums brigade. I'm merely trying to understand where they're coming from. And that... The personality not being strong enough, that's literally all I can come up with, because there's no universe in which Black Sabbath has a singer this talented, and everyone ignores them resoundingly, so I have to address it somehow. So consider it addressed, and let's move on. the strains of a song called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, a track buried pretty deeply on cross purposes, but one marketed with a black and white video that I've never seen. Musically, it's pretty clearly an Iomian Butler creation, and as the title suggests, it's very likely about the horror film of the same name because that's what Black Sabbath has done from the get-go. Have you noticed their band's name? Okay. And hey, there's even a response to the allegations against the Catholic Church with cardinal sin, and if that ain't Sabbath, I don't know what is, but man, just dig this Sabbath meets Kashmir vibe on the verses. Where do you go when your conscience takes over? The song was initially called Sin Cardinal Sin, but a printing error left off the first word, so they just went with it. You know, I think this is probably more than anyone has said about the Cross Purposes album in years. It has some really amazing and rewarding moments. I hear Tony Martin kind of coming into his own here and there. And if I can't have Bill Ward or Vinnie Apice, Bobby Rondinelli was born for this job, Jeff Nichols keeps the atmospherics tight, light, and dark, and I'm never upset that Iomi and Butler are creating together, but somehow, Cross Purposes has some really befuddling moments, and more of them per capita than Eternal Idol, Headless Cross, and Tear combined. I like it, but it could have been a bit stronger. It turns out that to try and combine all Sabbath eras into one tangible thing might actually be asking the impossible. They had the right lineup for it, but the all-over-the-place flow of the album tells the tale more than I ever could. If you're in this 
deep in this season of discography, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a great time reaching for cross-purposes and putting it on. Me, I'm good with just spinning it once in a while, I think. And if you think the waters are muddy here, oh man, hang on to your butts. Everyone, gonna pause here just for a second to do some links that matter. I'm Mark with the C. Thank you so much for tuning into Discography, checking us out, taking this journey with us. I hope you've had a great time this season. If you've enjoyed the show, please, wherever you found the podcast, say it was Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podomatic, Tide Pods, insert other pun here, just please rate, review us, especially if you're having a good time, because those good ratings and reviews get us in more eyes, more ears. We're basically Penny Lane if you help us out. Do you want to hook up with us on social media? On Facebook, you can look us up at Discography on CPN. That's right, Facebook.com slash Discography on CPN. Or you can just type Discography into the search box and hope for the best. If you want to hook up with me personally online, usually the best place to get a response from me within, like, I don't know, less than a year is um, Twitter. So you can find me at Mark Fi. That's right, M-A-R-C-F-I. As in, there's Hi-Fi, Mid-Fi, Lo-Fi, and Mark-Fi. But if you want to just dive into everything I do, markwithac.com. It's got all of my records there. Uh, the very lo-fi, kind of outsider, weird pop. A little bit off-kilter. Might be your thing. Might not. Up top, there's a bunch of links to all my social media stuff. Facebooks and whatnot, Instagrams. You can look at pictures of me playing with my bunnies and stuff. And you can see my grandson. I think I'm the youngest grandpa ever. Yes, I became a grandfather while writing about Born Again, in case you wonder just how stressful this freaking season was. Okay, okay, calm down, Mark, calm down. Also, there's a link at markwithac.com to patreon.com slash markwithac in case you'd like to help support my creative endeavors, because as you can imagine, being in the entertainment industry nowadays, unless you're the friggin' Eagles, you ain't making a whole lot of coin. Now, discography producer Cat Blackard, without them, we would not have the statement from Tony Martin Cat Blacker went above, beyond, and far past the call of duty for this season. A big round of applause to her. Cat Blacker also runs a really great podcast on nerdyshow.com, as well as basically just running nerdyshow.com. It's called the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. You're going to have a good time with it. If you're into, say, the lyrical content of Black Sabbath, there's kind of no way you don't have a really good time with it. I also want to thank... Razor Fist for joining me. He's the host of a really cool series on YouTube called Metal Mythos, also sometimes known as Music Mythos. I highly recommend his Music Mythos on Michael Jackson. Just trust me on this one. There's also, you know, some of the Metal Mythos, I ended up not, well, I watched them, but I didn't actually know too much about the groups and found myself a fan of bands because he's just really entertaining when he talks about them. Plus, he knows his shit. And I want to thank him for dropping by. If you want to check out Metal Mythos or Music Mythos, look up the Rageaholic on YouTube. You're going to find him and have a great time while you do it. If you need more of a Black Sabbath fix online, your one and only destination should be black-sabbath.com. There's a lot of great research materials out there that we've used for this season. A lot of books. Uh, I've mentioned them pretty much every episode. Black Sabbath Song by Song by Stephen Pilkington. Uh, I believe we've also talked about Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, The Battle for Black Sabbath, Tony Iommi's great autobiography, Iron Man, Symptom of the Universe by Mick Wall, 
Hell, even the book I Am Ozzy kind of got us where we were going. But most importantly, I'd like to implore you, beg of you, if somehow you're not already, like, just coated in Black Sabbath goods, if you've enjoyed this season, please support the people that made this music. Any way that you possibly can, any way that feels right for you, they made this music for us to enjoy. Support them, please. This has been Links That Matter. I'm Mark with a C, and in just a second, yeah, we're getting into the Forbidden Zone. Just before we get into talking about the album Forbidden, here's a clip from Razorfist talking about some things regarding Tony Martin in this specific period that I really think we should have out there in the ether before we go any further. Tony Martin was not treated well during that era at all. And the whole way that, I mean, it really was like a demoralizing exercise. The band basically already knew Ozzy's going to come back. Like, he basically had put them on hold. Hell, they, they had been talking about that since uh, Cross Purposes, even, right? It was like every, every album, it seemed like Tony Iommi would just go back to Ozzy. Are you ready to reunite? Are you ready to reunite? And every single time he'd kind of, oh, yeah, I think I am. And then he wouldn't. Right. So it was kind of a back and forth thing. So by the time Forbidden came along, it was basically they had a gentleman's agreement. OK, Ozzy's coming back to the band. But in the meantime, here you go. Go have a world tour. And so they're doing hard work. Mind you, the Tony Martin lineup of the band, and this is something that nobody really talks about, is the reason Black Sabbath is an international band. They were not an international band prior to that. They were an American and British band. The hard work that the Tony Martin lineup did in territories like Russia and Bulgaria and Morocco and all these like countries that are now broken, they are now strongholds for heavy metal. The hard work they did in Germany is the reason Black Sabbath could go out on their final farewell tour and sell out arenas in Russia. Like a good example is the year they did Headless Cross, they went out on tour and Ozzy went out around the same time on the uh, No Rest for the Wicked tour. Didn't draw anywhere near a crowd that, uh, that Black Sabbath did. The Headless Cross lineup was so popular at this time. Keep in mind, the Russians don't know. They think they're getting like the original Black Sabbath. Like this must be said. But they did like a residency. Right. Like they were, I believe it was in Moscow. They're, they literally were there for, I don't know, like a two week stretch and they would do multiple shows a day. They would do like one show and they'd have 40,000 people outside. And the, when one group was gone, the, they'd bring in the other 40,000 people. And Tony Martin would do these shows back to back. He never canceled the show. Right. Like he never lost his voice. What Tony Martin did for this band is really not talked about. He made this an international band. They weren't one with Ozzy or for that matter with Dio. I'd like to thank Razorfist for that commentary as well as all the commentary that he's supplied here in the second half of the season of discography, as well as the inspiration to even find some of these rabbit holes that we've gone down. And to be honest with you, we can't. Even if we did this season for three years straight, we would never, ever cover everything. It's just impossible. And will we ever even know everything there is to know about this era? Probably not. It just ain't coming. But let's focus on what we can. 
Album 18 by Black Sabbath hit shelves rather quickly after cross-purposes. It's called Forbidden. IRS Records released it on June 20th of 1995, and it's the reunion you have all been waiting for. That's right, the reunion of the same lineup that brought you classic albums like Tear and Tear. Look, it's the Tear lineup. So where'd Geezer go? Funny you should ask. The band had even coaxed Bill Ward back into the fold at one point while talks of various singers took place, possibly including, but not limited to, Rob Halford and a guy named Ozzy Osbourne. The rumor mill suggests that, one, Bill just couldn't get excited about Sabbath without Ozzy, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Though Bill says that the newer material called for him to play over Tony's riffs rather than around it in a supporting role and he couldn't wrap his head around it or was simply unwilling and that was it for Bill. Some suggest that Tony and Geezer had an argument over something to do with a Sabbath tribute record called Nativity in Black, but when you've known someone for that long, when you've worked with someone for that long, who can even imagine the types of powder kegs created between them over time? I've seen random internet fans claim that Geezer was desperately unhappy with Tony Martin, and there was a paraphrased quote that I'd seen thrown around that more or less amounted to something like, Geezer claimed that Tony Martin would shoot down the heavier ideas and wanted to stay more melodic in AOR. And I'll tell you, if I could find a reputable source for the origin of that quote, it'd surely go a long way to explaining this confusion, but as it is, I can't confirm or deny that. And so, Neil Murray returns to play bass, Jeff Nichols is Tony Iommi's right-hand man this time around, and as Cozy Powell returned, he wasn't too thrilled to find out that he was pretty much just going to be treated as just the drummer, rather than having equal billing with Mr. Iommi. Oh, and there's a whole lot more to why, but let me hand it over to Razor Fist to take it from here. Yeah, and I heard this is the kind of the X factor nobody really talks about. You know, there's a lot of people who say Tony Iommi did Cozy Powell wrong and whatever, and I'm a huge Cozy Powell fan. But this is after he had his accident with uh, like horse riding accident, which which really fucked his legs up and his hip. He had to have a surgery. There was some talk he might not survive. Um, he like he was really fucked up, and you you hear this from multiple sources. But like I I recently read a, a book where they talked more in depth about it. And to be perfectly honest, by the time Forbidden came around, Tony Iommi kind of did him wrong in the sense that he sort of pushed him to the side. Like when when this lineup was brought back, it was sort of done under the proviso that like. You know, they had momentum going in. You know, they did up from Eternal Idol. Then they sort of hit uh, Headless Cross. And that's really when they had a unit, uh, unit. And it was sort of a partnership of Tony Iommi and Cozy Powell. He was brought back on Forbidden and he wasn't physically as well. And so Tony Iommi didn't feel comfortable making him sort of an equal partner. And then, of course, there was the looming threat of the reunion that was going on. Ozzy constantly cock teasing with, you know, he was kind of keeping the band on hold, to be perfectly honest. And so it sort of felt like a reunion of the tier headless cross lineup. But but it really wasn't one. Right. They were just sort of keeping the seat warm uh, to a large degree. So you kind of have to factor in the the whole drum sound and everything. 
some of that has to do with some of the limitations that Cozy Powell now is dealing with. Physically, he wasn't as well as he had been. He was still kind of recovering from a pretty traumatic accident. I think by the time he got on to like Brian May and stuff, and he did the stuff that he did right before his unfortunate accident and when he passed away, he he had sort of built up his stamina and endurance a little bit better. But by this time, this is like the mid 90s, correct? He he was still pretty not very far removed from that incredibly traumatic incident. Now, what's this you say? Drum sounds. If you've never heard the album Forbidden, oh, stick around. That will definitely be brought up a few times over. And there's Tony Martin himself. What can we say about this long-suffering man in the making of the Forbidden album? Not much, but just enough, which is reportedly he wrote all the lyrics here, but never actually put pen to paper, just freestyling until he hit on something that fit, and I'll be touching on what that brought to the fore in a little bit. But if you're waiting for the shoe to drop, here's when it hits the floor. This album is certainly of the contractual obligation variety, but IRS Records didn't want just any Sabbath record. No, they wanted them to bring in what I've seen referred to as a, quote, hip producer. And when they suggested Ernie C, guitarist of Ice-T's band, Body Count, well, it doesn't really take a genius to figure out what the label was hoping might transpire, but guess what? Discography boss Cat Blackard did us right. We're able to go directly to the source. We've had an interview with Ernie Cunnigan. That's right, guitarist of Body Count, producer of the Forbidden album. He's gonna help illustrate some of this, and we're gonna try to put the Forbidden period in as much focus as we possibly can, at least regarding what's on the actual record, how it came to be, that whole process. So of course, you know, the very first question that I had to ask Ernie was, Ernie, how did you get this job? You know, I really don't know. You know, George called, I think it had to do with uh, Miles Copeland, who was uh, the head of their um, record company, who was IRS Records. I think it was in his head for me to produce the record. So then they reached out to, uh, to me and uh, they said they wanted me to produce their next record. And I was like, well, I, you know, I was kind of surprised myself because at that point I've only done like two records, you know, and I was kind of new on the scene. So, uh, you know, it was, it, I met Tony Iommi. He came to a show of ours over in uh, England. And, um, you know, he was cool. He was, you know, he said, you know, I'd like for you to do the record. And I was like, okay, cool. It was, it was a great honor. So it was Tony Iommi that confirmed that he wanted you to work on Forbidden. Yes, yeah, it was him and Miles. So yeah, he can, I met Tony. He was the, the the one I met that represented the group. I, I didn't meet managers or anything like that. I, I met Tony himself. I mean, you know, it, it was Miles. I mean, Miles is the one that, that really started, you know, doing it. I, I believe. And then Tony just got on board after a while. The end result was a record that few people on Earth seem to be all that good with. A very, very odd Black Sabbath album where everything's just a little bit askew, a little off. I've rarely seen anyone involved speak all that kindly of the record, and while initial press releases for the album praise the return to raw production, the party line for most fans ends up being something like this. Worst Black Sabbath album ever, terrible production, amateurish artwork, some of the songs had promise but ultimately avoided all costs. And this is where you look to me, the contrarian, to tell you why that's all wrong, right? And I can't. I can tell you I get it. I can tell you that while it's not my favorite Sabbath album, this is a 
brilliant summation of around 25 years of literal sabotage, broken promises, failed marriages, outliving fads and genres, and when the bitterness sets in after all of your perseverance, that moment in time isn't pretty, and for that reason, forbidden isn't pretty. Not at all. Quite ugly, really. And by all accounts, this album was genuinely crapped out as fast as can be, so the best part is that's all by accident. They didn't have time to think, they just wrote, Ernie rolled the tape. The resulting album isn't even something I can call fun, but my god, it's accurate! So I wanted to know, hey Ernie, what was the atmosphere like in the studio? What set of circumstances was taking place behind the glass to make Forbidden? I, I thought it was relaxed, you know, it was, I was trying to, to, to get them to, to, to have the energy that they had on their first record. You know, when you reach a point, you get kind of jaded and kind of laid back and, you know, you just float through records. I was trying to bring the energy and the fire back into them, you know. I, I believe I, I, I got something going, because after that, you know, after that record, they started doing the Oz Fest and they brought Ozzy back in. So something happened during that time where they got, you know, got re-energized. You know, actually, Tony, you know, Tony basically does these records himself. You know, but he doesn't want the job of producing the record because there's a lot of tedious work that he doesn't want to do. So basically, the record goes the way he wants it to go, you know. And, and uh, I just thought they would, they would be open. They weren't open for change the way I thought they would be. You know, they wanted things the way they wanted. He wanted things the way they wanted to. So it was kind of a, uh, a, a push and pull between the way I wanted things and the way they wanted things. So that's why the record turned into such a kind of a middle ground record. You know, I don't know. It's probably, the, not the, I always say to people, you know, it might be their worst record, you know, out of the, the Sabbath records, but how many Sabbath records have you got to produce? So that's <laughs> always. And when you put it that way, can you blame Ernie for having the last laugh but hey, let's go ahead and just hurry up and get to the elephant in the room. Yes, Ice-T does guest on a song here, but no, this isn't some rap rock new metal thing. He literally just does a spoken word verse over the opening track. I think that people see it all written out on the back cover. The Illusion of Power featuring Ice-T. Listed on the back cover as the first track and immediately make assumptions. But those assumptions are wrong. In fact, I'll go as far as saying it's the least predictable moment in the Sabbath catalog since possibly the first appearances of Rick Wakeman on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath because even if you don't see the track list, you are not expecting this song from this band, this lineup, and this set of circumstances. What is it that turns you all to the illusion of power? This thing that grabs you by the heart and makes you want to tear things down? There is no reason why I should need all this power. But if you trust me now, I'm gonna tell you. No, I am not fucking with you. If you've heard it before, you know this to be true. And if you haven't, feel free to ask any of the other 191,000 people that bought this record by 2013, and they'll back me up on this. Sabbath took a hard, hard left turn on this album, and that iced tea portion that everyone was so scared of, this is what they were running from. Powerful. Who are you fooling? You're caught in a complex catacomb of your own inadequacies and pitiful weaknesses. Your soul secretes insecurity, so you live on the reflection side of the mirror. You're terrified of true power. You fear. I can tell you. Seriously, that's it. That's what put everyone up in arms. Literal proof to not judge a record by the cover. Unless it's the other nine songs on Forbidden, the cover was pretty much dead on about. The, I kid, I kid. 
In all seriousness, you know that I just had to turn to Ernie and say, whose idea was it to have ice on the record? Was it your idea, Ernie? Was it the label's idea? Was it Tony's idea? I wanted ice on the record because he's the biggest Sabbath fan. You know what I mean? On his first record that he did, he used War Pigs as a sample, you know, on uh, his song, uh, Six in the Morning. I think it's Six in the Morning, but he uses War Pigs as a sample so when I when I got to do the record he it was like he was doing the record he was so excited for me to do the record you know so I, I, I asked him I said and I told Tony I said can I get Ice to, to come in and, and, and do something and Tony was like you know yeah that'd be fine you know and he didn't ask anybody he didn't that was not by committee you know he, I asked him personally I said can I get Ice to come in and do a couple of lyrics you know and it's fine that'd be fine if I dissected the Forbidden album cut by cut, it'd be me trying to find roughly nine different ways to say the same thing, which is, there's a cool promising riff in there, Cozy Pal's drum tones have all the production gloss of most wax Edison cylinders, the musicianship is serviceable even at worst, and holy Christ the lyrics are bitter, wash, rinse, repeat. That said, I understand why all of those things are there, and it is very successful at being those things. In fact, I'd even go as far as saying Forbidden should be issued to you the second you get fired from your job. It's that kind of record. It is the record that you crank when you've just been fired from a job with a boss you can't stand. It is that kind of record. It is a divorce record. It's a breakup record. It's a lot of things. And it's a very different record for Sabbath, but that does not actually mean bad. The inescapable fact is that Tony Iommi got knocked to the mat repeatedly over the course of his tenure in Black Sabbath by 1995. And this time when he tried to get up, he couldn't completely recover and Tony Martin has no doubt caught wind of it while feeling what was certain to be at least some anger that it was all for naught, that he'd been everyone's whipping boy for far too long, despite perceived shortcomings, even by yours truly, Forbidden is a painfully upfront portrayal of the death of a dream. And it's so on the nose that it even brought the misery right along with it and gives it to the listener. I'm kidding so much less than you think. Truth and art is not always going to leave you with the warm and fuzzies. And on that likely unintended level, Forbidden is a rousing success. Somebody tell me, where did we lose? Where's the point that we lost the control to live with each other? That's a bit of the track called Get a Grip, but just look at these song titles. I Won't Cry For You, Kiss Of Death, Sick And Tired. You know, go ahead, find the lie. I asked Ernie about watching Tony Martin freestyle, and I asked him what that might look like in practice, and he offered this. You know, he had big shoes to fill, so he was always kind of, I'll say, use the word, just trying to find himself in that band, you know? It would have been better if it was his own band or he would have started that band, it would have been a whole lot better. But he had to fill some big shoes, you know, those two singers. You know, even Dio, you know, he was big, you know what I mean? So, Tony, just you know, he had a, it was a no-win situation, you know? I spent more time than I want to admit trying to figure out how to approach this, an album so controversial within the fan base that Tony Iommi himself has stated as recently as early 2019 that he would like to remix it, and don't worry, we asked Ernie about that. It's coming up later. But to the best of my knowledge, that was one of the first kind things almost anyone involved had ever possibly said about it. 
But it all started to come into focus when I read a story at black-sabbath.com where the writer explains what each song on the record meant to them during a painful breakup that it all came into focus for me. The fact that the tier lineup is back is actually really fitting because I don't really see Forbidden as an album, but more as a 44-minute rumination on trying your best, but not being good enough, not figuring it out until everyone else has already left the party. One of the most successful standalone tracks here sees Tony Martin focusing on his lower range while Tony Iommi drops one of his unending supply of classic riffs underneath in the short and bittersweet Shaken Off the Chains. It's even kind of a throwback to the way that Ozzy Osbourne's vocal melodies would sometimes follow a riff directly rather than, well, how pretty much every other Sabbath singer did things. And it winds up with the emergence of almost sour sounding overlapping solos to really drive that bitterness home. recorded in only 10 days and Cozy Powell once joked that it shows and this is where I pop in to remind you that the first Black Sabbath album barely took more than a day to get done so I don't want to hear anything about this being a rush job face it Tony Iommi usually pulls something at least kind of cool out of the bag under duress each time and history's pretty clear about that but the album actually was almost devoid of guitar solos according to producer Ernie Cunnigan I'm gonna let him tell this amazing story all on his own. I had a chance to hang out with Brian May. He came to one of the sessions. I mean, it was like rock and roll. I, I sat down with Tony every night for dinner. He and I learned about the history of rock and roll. So I, I don't have a bad excuse. You know, the record came out and did what it did. But the time we were there hanging out together, it was fine. See, the record was on its own, but the time, the personal time that I had, was a whole another story. Do you want to touch on that? I mean, me and Tony hung out. He, he had a good sense of humor. You know, there, there was one time, I'll, I'll say this, you know, I, I, they were at a point, like I said, they were kind of laid back. And then one, they did all the, um, they did, the tracks were all laid and this and that. And Tony, I wanted Tony to play some solos and this and that. And he, he didn't want to really play the solos because, you know, at like 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, they left the studio. So they were like, I'm you're on your own. You know, I'll see you tomorrow. You know, they, they were like business. I mean, they were like, you know, at that point, you know, you know kind of band stayed till 1 and 2 in the morning. They tried to get out. They didn't do that. They left at a certain time. They came back. They had, we all had dinner together. It was real organized. And so, um, so Tony didn't, you know, he, he didn't want to play a whole lot of guitar and stuff. So I stayed up one night. As a matter of fact, he brought the guitar that he played on Iron Man for me to play on. And, and he said it's left hand. It was a left-handed guitar. You know, I'm a left-handed guitarist. So I, I stayed up all night and played that guitar. And so I told the engineer, I grabbed one of my guitars. I said, I'm going to play guitar through this whole record. We put on the record, and I played all the way through it. You know, just every spot that I wanted to solo, I just played a bunch of stuff, just all over. And so Tony came in the next day, I played stuff for him. He's like, okay. So then he got motivated to play guitar, and he went in and started doing guitar solos all over the place, you know. It had more guitar on that record than it was going to have, just because I laid all the guitar down one night. I know, my mind is blown too, and I know I'm not talking much about Neil Murray or Jeff Nichols here, and my apologies to them. They're a 
contributions I'm sure are very important, but they're not terribly audible. And for all we know, a fresh remix could uncover a bunch of buried connective tissue that would make all the difference in the world, but that's about as likely as it sounds. Still, it would be nice to hear the whole lineup, but in a way, that also brings songs like Guilty as Hell to the fore with its guitar tones being completely up front, just like, you know, circa 1980 or 1981. And truthfully, there's more callbacks per capita here than I think most people give forbidden credit for. And speaking of musicianship, okay, just listen to this intro of the song Sick and Tired and tell me that with a slightly more forgiving mixing decision that this song couldn't have just blown your spine right out of the back of your head. And then we're going to let Ernie finally clear up why the drums sound the way they sound. You know, we, 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 I mean, when I, Cozy, I met, first met Cozy, he had a bunch of drum sets set up, and he, he's, he went and played, he's going to play on each drum set for a while, and then you can pick the pieces out that you like on each drum set and this and that, and he, he went through a whole thing, he played for, for a few hours, and at the end of it, he, he kind of said, which pieces do you like? And I'm just like, you know, it all sounds great. You know, you listen to Cozy Power play, it all sounds great. So it's harder to, I like this snare, I like that Tom. You know, it's like, it all sounds great. So I just picked out a drum set, some cymbals and this and that. So he set it up. So we spent uh, a couple of, you know, when we were in the studio, we spent a couple of days working on, on his drums. Now, my whole idea, but I wasn't trying to... Uh, to go back to the first Sabbath record, I was trying to get a Nirvana sound, like drying it up, because that, that, that sound, that big wet, big room sound wasn't in. That big concert sound wasn't in for bands. Bands were like small club bands. I felt bands were more in your face. That's what Nirvana made popular, you know, like a club sound, not a big concert where God sound. So I was trying to dry up the drums. That, that was my whole, you know, the, 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 the dry kick drum, the dry drum sound. And so I, I did it, and, you know, we worked on it for a few days. And then at the end of it, you know, I dried him up and cozy listened to it. He came in and listened to it. He had a stopwatch there beside me because he was, you know, he, he, he timed everything. When, he, when they played, he had a stopwatch. So he'd be like, I'm off there. I'm off there. You know, he, he timed everything. I was like, whoa, this is, this is going to be difficult. So, um, so I, he, he listened to it, and he said to me, you know, at the end of it, I remember that. He says, he said to me, Ern, that sounds really good. That sounds really, really good. And I thought he was, he was like, giving me praise and this and that. He said, that sounds really good, but I'm Cozy Powell. And he, said, he gave me a DAT tape with his drum sounds on it. He says, this is where my drums sound, and I want them to sound like this tomorrow. I said, okay, let me turn on the reverb. So there you have it. It basically sounds like the drums were recorded one way, and then midway through, Cozy wanted a complete and total change in direction. Almost any producer will tell you, if you try to fix it in the mix after it's been recorded a completely different way for a completely different treatment, you might be in for some trouble. But moving along, in Japan, the album ends with a song called Loser Gets It All. But as the average copy of Forbidden does not contain it, I'm not really factoring it in here, even though it's a fine addition to the record in its own right. But the worldwide tracklist brings this album and Act 3 to a close with the trifecta of clear album highlight, Rusty Angels, then the title track, and an appropriate kiss off and kiss of death. Rusty Angels alone sounds like it'd have been a bit more marketable than most things you could point to here, but that's assuming there was much of anywhere to market it in 1995, because we know that the mainstream landscape wasn't too kind to the heavy stuff right around that era, especially for more melodic heaviness. Yeah. 
closing track, and I do mean epic, kiss of death that really breaks into the ugliness of this whole ordeal in musical form. Tony Martin sings over a deceptively soft opening, with lyrics like, We tried to show you on your way, but still, you cannot see you're hurting me, you told too many lies, and so it ends. And then... That's just the tip of the canoe, too. Lyrics like, you tried to take my world away, and so many people tried before, but still I came through stronger than before someone like you will never get through my door, make you wonder if Tony Martin is singing on behalf of Tony Iommi or directly to him. The tension's real, it's palpable, and no production decision can hide something so, so evident. that Forbidden eventually begins to fade out and back. There's no arguing the mightiness of Black Sabbath as a band, an ethos, a brand name, and a vibe. But there's also no arguing that they close Act 3 with a bit of a whimper rather than a bang. But it's an absolutely perfect bang, really. It might have been a bang if more people have heard it and understood it, but again, at this point, after the release of Forbidden, there was no contract to fulfill. No solid lineup. No solidified Sabbath plans. And as of this moment in 1995, as a going concern, as a recording act, there was no more Black Sabbath. The final full album of original material to bear the Black Sabbath name for almost 20 years would close fittingly with what appears to be the oral equivalent of saying, hey, we're checking out for a while. This is no Tony, I only want to remix Forbidden. I mean, I really don't pay that much attention to it. You know, it's like, I would like to remix my first record. You know, it's like, you, you want to go back and you you can't, it is what it is, you know? It's been out for 25 years. And, you know, it's like it's like when you have an old film, you want to add color to it. You just want something different, you know? So it, it's the same thing. If he wants to remix it, he can remix it. And I'll listen to it and I'll say, you know, I like it or I don't like it and, and, and why did you do that? Or some of the things you know, are going to say the same. There's some things you can't remix or that's not going to be any better. I don't know what, what you're going to get. The songs are going to be the songs. And while Forbidden does end Act 3 on a subversively confounding yet very effective note, all great three-act stories will come with a curtain call of some type, and let me tell you, Black Sabbath does them like no other. Thanks so much for joining us. For discography, hey, we're going to be back next week talking about that Black Sabbath curtain call. This is not going exactly where you think it's going. I want to say a big thank you not only to you for listening, but also to Razorfist for joining me for a few episodes, as well as Ernie Cunnigan, and he's got something he wants to tell you about that's coming up. Buddy comes working on a record called Carnivore, and it'll, it'll be out in um, probably early next year. 
we're working on the tracks right now. Just say anybody count you know and love. And um, you know, we might have some guests on it. We're working on some, some tracks with some guests on and things like that. Discography is produced, engineered, written by, etc. All by me, Mark with a C. Thank you so much. It's done right here in Orlando, Florida. Our producer, Kat Blackard. Oh, this season would have been very, very different without her. Thank you so much, Kat. Applause to you. That's the sound of one man clapping, I guess. Hey, I'm out of puns. That means it's time to end the damn show. Until next time, I'll see you, my friends. Take care. Background music by Chris Abriski. Find out more at chrisabriski.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 